Um, happy Sunday. Today, uh, we are continuing in our series that we've been in. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 8. And if you, uh, if you have the Pew Bible that's in front of you, it's page 894. Uh, and we are continuing in our series that where we are walking through the various statements in the book of John that Jesus makes about himself. We're calling it, I am. And, uh, and we're, we're basically taking all of the season of Lent that we're in the middle of right now to ask the question, who is Jesus according to Jesus? There's a lot of speculation out there about who Jesus was, why he came to the earth. Um, but the best person, I think, to answer those questions for us is Jesus himself. And in the book of John, there are seven statements where Jesus says, I am and then describes what he has come to do. So the first week of the series, we looked at the fact that Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and how that points us to uh, a core longing in our hearts, a, a desire to be led, and what is this good leadership that Jesus comes uh, to, to demonstrate. And then last week, we looked at Jesus' statement from John chapter 6, where he said, I am the bread of life. And how he fulfills a core longing in each one of us, a longing to be filled, a longing to be satisfied. And today we are looking at Jesus' statement found in John chapter 8, where he announces to everyone who is listening, I am the light of the world. So let's pray, and then we'll look at the text together. Jesus, we thank you that you are here with us, that you are not just him, some historical figure that we look back at and that we try to imagine what it would be like if you were here today, but that you really are here dwelling among us, dwelling within us, and that we can look forward to the day when you come back. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would illuminate our understanding, you would open the eyes of our hearts to be able to receive everything that you have for us from your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus, it says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This week, uh, I was at the portal for some early morning prayer meetings. Every week, I try to make at least a handful of our daily prayer meetings that are mostly at 6 a.m. If you come to a 6 a.m. prayer meeting, you are showing us, you are showing yourself, and you are showing Jesus just how much you love him. Because it takes a real commitment to show up that early. And during this time of year, or during the winter, it is particularly difficult to show up to a 6 a.m. prayer meeting because you feel like you are going to pray in the middle of the night. It is absolutely dark, and there is no hope of sunrise on the horizon. It is just darkness. And during this time of year, we are beginning to come out of the darkness. I was pacing in the prayer room, and it was about 6.15, 6.20 in the morning, and I looked out, and I could see that there was light outside. It wasn't sunrise yet. It was astronomical sunrise. It was just the beginning of twilight, and my heart was lifted, and I was filled with energy, and the Holy Spirit came upon me and said, there is yet hope. Spring is coming. And this is the theme of most of the Bible. In fact, as I was preparing to preach a sermon about how Jesus is the light of the world, 
There are countless scriptures pointing to us to the fact that God has come to illuminate this dark world. And this is a theme that stretches all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning, how the Bible opens. This is how the Bible opens. It says, Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. So we see that in the beginning, before God rolled up his sleeves and began the work of creating and ordering the universe, the earth was described this way. It was described as formless, empty, and dark. And the very first thing that God does in ordering his creation is he releases light. He says, let there be light. And the moment that God speaks this and light is released, we see that the formless world begins to be ordered. That the darkness is pushed back. That what was empty is now beginning to be filled. You see, the light of God is the ordering of chaos and disorder. The light of God, it illuminates what is dark. And the light of God, it fills the spaces that are empty. And Jewish rabbis take note of the fact that this verse is different in key ways from all of the other creative utterances that God makes through the rest of Genesis chapter 1. Right after he says, let there be light, it says, we, we see this phrase, and there was light. And every other time that God speaks something into existence in Genesis chapter 1, we read the phrase, and it was so. And rabbinic commentaries note, they suggest that in Genesis 1, God doesn't actually create light out of nothing, but rather light has always and already exists in him, and that upon saying, let there be light, he is releasing himself into his created order. That is the moment when light enters the world. So when he says, let there be light, he is releasing his presence and his power and his goodness. He is releasing himself into the created world. This light that we read in Genesis chapter 1, it is more than merely just uh, a wave um, or energy or a particle or whatever light is. We're still trying to figure that out. That it is God's manifest presence, what the ancient Israelites called the Shekinah glory, the divine presence. And this light, this light that was spoken in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, actually came before the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars, before any of them came on this scene. So according to Genesis, plants were actually created before the sun and the moon, which means this that the light of God's presence was sustaining life before there was ever any kind of sun and moon and stars. And in the ancient Jewish uh, way of thinking, the, the, in the rabbinic writings, the sun and moon, when they're formed on the fourth day, some of the light of God's presence, some of this Shekinah glory is actually withdrawn, and that is the point where the world starts to become earthy. And the hope throughout the rest of the biblical story, is looking forward to the day when God's Shekinah glory, when this presence, this light of God's presence would be reintroduced into the creation. And what the prophets say, that the earth will one day be filled with the glory of God, with the Shekinah presence, like the waters cover the sea. 
That the end of the story in the book of Revelation is that one day there will be no more sun, moon, and stars because everything will be fully illuminated by the glory of God. And the hope of the Jewish people in Jesus' day was that this kind of Shekinah glory, this kind of divine presence would accompany the coming of the Messiah that they were looking forward to. They were looking for a day when God would send, an, would send to Israel a king that would restore everything to its natural created order. And they were particularly excited because they were God's chosen people and they would be raised up to be the first among all humanity. And so in the book of John, we see Jesus consistently taking the imagery that was throughout the rest of scripture was appropriated to this Messiah or was even appropriated to God himself, and he puts it on himself and says, that's me. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the bread of life. I'm the, the light of the world. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I am the door. And what he is saying in that moment is that, yes, I am the Messiah, but I am a different kind of Messiah than you were expecting. And with the rest of the statements that we've read so far and that we're going to continue to read throughout the rest of this series, they keep pointing us back to Israel's story in the book of Exodus. We looked at how God, or sorry, how Jesus is the good shepherd, how he is even better than Moses, that Moses shepherded God's people through the wilderness to the promised land. We looked at how Jesus is the bread of life and that he is even better than Moses who gave the Israelites manna in the wilderness that Jesus gives us himself so that we might not ever hunger again. And today in this text that Jesus is the light of the world, again, he's pointing us back to Israel's story in the book of Exodus. To understand the meaning of Jesus' words here, we have to carefully look at the context in which he said that. What, in which he said it. One of the most important rules when you're reading, when you're studying, when you're trying to understand the Bible is to look at the words you're reading in its original context. You have to put the text in context. And so the question that when we look at this, this, this verse right here, the single verse, John chapter 8, verse 12, we have to consider where was Jesus when he said this? What was happening around him? So glad you asked. You asked the best questions. At the beginning, or in, order, in order for us to understand that, we actually have to go back a chapter to John chapter 7. Now, at the beginning of John 7, we read that people were flooding into the city of Jerusalem from all over the region because it was the Jewish festival called Sukkot which is the Festival of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. And this was the biggest celebration of the year in the Jewish calendar. And by law, every Jewish man that lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem was required to come to the city along with his family, or if possible, along with his family, to celebrate this feast that was actually days long. And this is what was happening right in the midst of Jesus. This festival was not like the Day of Atonement. It wasn't everybody fasting and mourning. This festival was a party. It was the biggest celebration of the year. And it was multiple days of families, and they would build these tents in the city, these little tabernacles, and they would sleep there during the festival. And they were remembering what it was like when God's people were sojourning through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And they would build these, they would intentionally build these, these little tabernacles, these little tents, 
out of very thin material or they would have lots of gaps in the top so that they would be able to look up and they'd see the light and the glory of the stars from above and that also the light of the temple would illuminate their tents while they were sleeping there. And so for the festival of Sukkot, there were two main ceremonies that are really important for us to understand. The first was all, was all about um, the, the pouring of water. And so uh, each day, the people would come to the temple, and they would be carrying a citrus fruit, and they would carry uh, a myrtle branch or a palm frond along with them. And when they all gathered together, a priest would come out. And this priest was holding a, um, a golden pitcher. And when they saw the priest with the golden pitcher, they began to celebrate, and they would sing psalms of rejoicing and celebration, and they would all walk together with the priest to the pool of Siloam. And when they finally get to the pool, the priest would take this golden pitcher, he would dump it down, dunk it down into the water to fill it up, and then they would celebrate and they would recite the, these, these words from Isaiah chapter 12, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And he would pull the pitcher out of the water and they would celebrate and they would dance and the the priest would lead them back to the temple courts and as they walked back to the temple courts, the trumpets would sound, they would blast from it within the temple celebrating the coming of this pitcher. The priest would walk up to the altar, walk onto the platform and pour out the water from this pitcher all over the platform. And this was a form of, of prayer, actually, crying out to God that the God who has provided waters to uh, rain to water the earth for their crops, that he would continue to do it again. It's quite the celebration, pretty exciting. And in verse 37 of chapter 7, we read this. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, he shouted out for everyone to hear, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. You see, Jesus disrupts the entire festival to all those who are gathered, and he points them to himself, and he says, look at what you're doing. You're pouring out this water on the the, the platform. You're crying out to God that he would continue to give you just what you need, the water that you need. But if you come to me, if you are thirsty and you come to me, I will give you water so you will never thirst again. You will never have any lack. Everything that you long for is ultimately fulfilled in me. Are you thirsty Are you concerned about the rain? Are you looking for the wells of salvation? Come to me and receive. Praise God. It's pretty pretty profound. And you know how people responded when Jesus said that? Actually, it was a totally mixed bag. Some people, when they heard it, their eyes were opened. And they thought, oh my goodness, this is the Messiah. Others were saying, oh my goodness, he is a prophet. The religious leaders were freaked out. So upset because they could see that the crowd was beginning to believe. And they were looking for ways to start coming against Jesus. More on that later. The second, the second ceremony in the festival of Sukkot is what was called the illumination of the temple. And this took place in the treasury, in the court of women. And in the center of the treasury, they had these huge uh, uh, torches that they only lit during Sukkot. And these were not small torches that you put, you know, on the, on the walls to sort of light the hallway for you. 
These were these massive torches, and when they, would, when they lit them, the flame just like it came up and it illuminated the entire temple. And this was the only time of the year and probably the only time that these ancient people would ever have seen such light in the middle of the night. And they would dance and they would sing and they made music, they had instruments, and they partied all night until sunrise. This was like the epic party of the year. And all of this was a celebration remembering back to the great pillar of fire that led God's people through the wilderness out of their captivity in Egypt. And Jesus is now standing in this court, in the treasury, in the court of women, with the smell of the extinguished torches still lingering in the air. And he declares this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, Jesus is pointing us back all the way to their story. He's pointing up to these torches. And he's saying, again, all of this that we are celebrating is going to find its ultimate fulfillment right here in me. Jesus is here declaring that he is more than light. He's more than bread. He's more than a shepherd. He's more than the source of living water. Again and again, Jesus is testifying, I am the God of Israel who created you, who leads you, who satisfies you, and who saves you. And these great torches, they symbolize the Shekinah glory, the divine presence that led them from their bondage in Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. And it's the same Shekinah glory that actually descended to the earth and it separated uh, God's people, the Israelites, from the Egyptian army as they passed through the Red Sea to safety away from their oppressors. And now Jesus is saying, I am the divine presence. And I've come, I've put flesh on me, and I've come to lead you out of bondage to your sin and into true life with God. He was pointing them to the fact that what was spoken of in their stories would ultimately fulfill the deeper longing in our hearts to be united with God again. Jesus is the fulfillment of what Exodus pointed to, the coming of God to dwell among his people. John, who wrote this gospel, back at the beginning of his book, he wrote this, In him was life, and that, light was the, that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the, sorry, Jesus is the light that brings life, and Jesus is the life that brings light. In Jesus, as with the first words that were uttered in Genesis chapter 1, the light of God's presence is being released to bring order to chaos, light to darkness, fullness to what's empty, and life to what is dead. And not only does Jesus bring life and healing, but we see in, in the word of God that he's come to bring revelation. That when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is talking about how he illuminates the human heart. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel. And that when this happens, when we suddenly awaken to the reality of God's salvation that is available to each one of us, that we begin to see the world and to see even our own lives in a whole new light. The things that we couldn't see in the dark 
or that we may not have noticed when the lights were out are suddenly apparent to us. And we begin to understand the goodness of God in new ways that we hadn't comprehended before. We begin to walk around the beauty of God's creation, and we see it in light of his glory, and we're moved towards him rather than towards just general awe and wonder. A couple of years ago, uh, I was hiking with, with Steve, with Pastor Steve, and we were way up on Silver Star, and it was like late May, early June, somewhere in there, and we were hiking along, and the wildflowers were like suddenly blooming, and you could smell all the fragrance of the mountain air, and it was incredible, and we looked like such dorks, just wandering around like in rapturous worship, just kind of in a day saying, wow, God, wow, God, wow, God. This is what happens when the light is turned on in our hearts. We no longer look at this, this beauty of creation and say, that's pretty cool. We say, oh my goodness, God is so good. That when the light of the gospel touches our hearts, we see the way that God has ordered the entire world And our minds and our lives are now shaped by truth, that we are formed into the likeness of Jesus. This is what happens with the light. And it's good. But if we're honest, there's also a scary side to the lights being turned on, isn't there? Because there's a truth that all of us know at a gut level, but most of us, at least from time to time, try to pretend isn't real. And it's this that nothing in our lives is hidden from God. That there, is no, there are no secrets that God doesn't see. That everything that you've done, everything that you feel, everything that you think, everything that you fantasize about, it's all laid bare before the eyes of God. There, there's no one that knows this better than King David, who himself was... He was a, a lover of God in ways that I wish that I could get to, and at the same time, a, an incredibly fallen man. And in Psalm 139, he writes this, If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, and the darkness is as light to you. You see, there is no place that we can hide ourselves from God. And yet we, like Adam and Eve, our first parents in Genesis chapter 3, we find ourselves over and over again attempting to sew together these fig leaves to hide our nakedness from God and each other. And the Bible says that this, this, this hiding, that this is darkness, that this is living in deception, and it leads us not to freedom, but rather to deeper shame and further bondage. Church people do this all the time. Like, this is something that church people are notorious for, that we make the mistake of believing that everyone else around us has it all together, has it all figured out, and that we are the only ones that really struggle. And we believe this lie that that, that for some reason, as a Christian, I should be further along by now. I shouldn't be still tripping up on the same sin. And so we hide. We hide it rather than addressing it. Or we feel a sense of failure, like we just can't overcome it. So we retreat, and we try to stuff it back in a dark corner. And we think that the worst thing that could happen to us would be for that thing to be exposed. We right now are in a year of unparalleled hiddenness 
Like we have never been more isolated from each other than we are right now. And if you look at the national statistics, you will see that across our entire nation, the stuff that has grown in the dark, the stuff that has grown in our lives, in our hiddenness, is so destructive and it is so pervasive. And my friends, the church is not exempt. And see, after a year of this stuff just growing in our lives, um, uh, what, what we see is that shame begins to creep in. And it causes us to further separate ourselves from each other and from the Lord. And you start to believe this lie that only I have stumbled into this junk. Only I am really struggling. And rather than coming forward to the church or coming forward to your close, trusted friends to confess and receive God's light in your life, instead you retreat into secrecy and hiddenness. And it's in that space where the tendrils of death and destruction wrap around us and choke us out. And this is happening everywhere. As pastorally, I don't really know how to say this because I know that we all want to do what is right. We all want to be healthy. We all want to do our part to see this awful pandemic eradicated from the face of the earth so that we can live whatever normal is. We can live free, right? We all want that. And at the same time, as a pastor, I, I, I find myself pleading with people, come back. I know that you want to be safe. I know you're playing it safe at home. I get it. But there is something that is happening to many people's souls in the hiddenness where we need to be around each other so that things can come to light and we can be healed. Amen? And so if you find yourself just retreating into the dark, maybe it's more comfortable at home rather than showing up to life group. Maybe it's more exhausting. To, it's too exhausting to get on Zoom. You just don't feel up to it. I want to ask God's people to press in and to not shrink back because your soul needs the fellowship with the body. Just to get practical about what this kind of stuff looks like. This looks like a person who has an injury, you know, playing sports or, or hiking along or whatever and, and receiving a prescription medication. And over time of taking these prescription pills, they become dependent on them. And, and suddenly there's like this moment of awakening that, oh my gosh, it's gotten out of hand and I'm addicted. And you never thought that this was something that could happen to you. And now you feel the, the guilt and the shame of being an addict. And you can never let this get out because what would happen if my spouse found out that I was struggling with this thing? What, what would happen if my life group found out? I don't want to admit this because people will look at me different. I'm no longer a normal person. I'm addict person, as if that's the worst thing that can happen. Or maybe you find yourself flirting with somebody in the office or on social media, maybe an old flame that you, that you haven't seen in a handful of years, and that in the secret, in the dark, you let your mind start to, to entertain the fantasy of being with somebody who you're not married to, who's not your spouse, and your heart starts to drift towards that person, and you begin to fantasize, and suddenly what was once completely unthinkable is now possible and even desirable. Maybe you've gotten in the habit of unwinding each day after work with a drink, and then you find yourself working from home more and more, and the, the end of the work day feels a little bit earlier, a little bit earlier, 
and you find yourself being drawn to the drink more than you thought you would. You no longer have the check of a schedule to hold you. And before you know it, it's problematic. And it's embarrassing to admit that you, that you don't have a handle on this anymore. But, you know, you, you say to yourself, it's normal. Everybody else struggles with it. And then recycling day comes. And it's time to bring the glass bin out to the curb. And you're face to face with the reality of the week that was before. And the embarrassment, even the shame that starts to creep in. And maybe you find yourself hiding bottles from your family members or, or hiding it from the neighbors because you just don't want to face the reality. Or maybe you find yourself late night scrolling on social media or surfing the internet. And no matter how hard you resist, and no matter how much shame you feel from the days before, you still find yourself going and pressing that private browsing button and indulging in pornography and other kinds of immorality. And you hate it. You feel this shame. You, you thought that you were going to be, be the one that breaks the generational cycle. You don't want to fall into the same sin as your dad or your grandpa, and yet here you are. And you begin to worry about the fact, like, is, am I going to pass this on to my kids? Are they going to struggle the same way that I struggle? And the guilt and the shame and the fear creeps in, and you don't feel like there's anybody else that struggles like you do. And so rather than bringing our sin into the light, we attempt to hide it in the dark. And my friends, you will never find the freedom that you long for in hiddenness. Ever. And when our, expo when our sin is exposed to Jesus, it doesn't surprise him. It doesn't shock him. He already knows all about it. Only you think that you're hiding. But he has seen it, and he has already paid for it all in his death on the cross. Do you know what story is located directly between Jesus' statement that he is the living water and that he is the light of the world? Do you know what happens right before the text that we read this morning? Early in the morning, during this festival of Sukkot, Jesus comes to the temple courts after having spent an evening in prayer on the Mount of Olives, and uh, the, the smell of the party from the night before is still lingering in the air, And these religious people, they come dragging a woman who had just been caught in the act of adultery, and they throw her at Jesus' feet. I mean, think about that. This is not a woman who was having an affair and felt suddenly guilty and needed to come to the temple to confess to a priest to feel absolved. This isn't a woman who is looking to be restored by Jesus. No, she was dragged before him and thrown right there in front of him in total humiliation and shame. And these religious people, again, they're seeking for a way to trap Jesus. And they're trying to use his compassion against him. And they ask Jesus, what should we do about this? The law requires us to pick up these giant heavy stones and to pummel her to death for her wickedness. And how does Jesus respond? He says, let the one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he pauses. In fact, the Bible says that he's looking at the ground. He's drawing while he's saying this. And I, I imagine that Jesus isn't even looking up and seeing them, but that he just hears the thud, thud, thud of stones dropping out of people's hands. And it says that beginning with the oldest, 
people start to walk away silently. Why the oldest? Because they're the ones who have the longest catalog of their own personal failures to be able to look back on and recognize that they are also a mess. And Jesus looks at this woman in deep humiliation in her greatest moment of shame, and he speaks to her, and he says this, where are your accusers? Daughter, who has come to accuse you? Is there anyone left who condemns you? And she says, no one, sir. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go, leave your life of sin. Go free. You are forgiven. You see, this woman's sin was dragged out of darkness and exposed in the light against her will. And when Jesus looked at at her, and when she looked back at him, she didn't see condemnation, she saw compassion. Her sin was dragged into the light of day, and those who were there to accuse her and to punish her all walked away silently. Why? Because of their own guilt. The Bible says that every single one of us, are by nature, we dwell in darkness, but that Jesus came that we might walk with him in the light. So consider this progression during this festival. The people come into Jerusalem and they're celebrating and they're dancing and they're singing with joy. You will draw water from the wells of salvation. And Jesus says, come to me. I'm the salvation. I will satisfy you. Come to me. And they're disrupted and they're shocked by it. And then the the guilty come and is thrown in front of Jesus. Is salvation available to her too? Can she come and drink too? And Jesus forgives and restores her. And then Jesus declares to all of us that if we follow him, that we, like this woman, can likewise leave the darkness behind and walk totally free in the light. We are invited to receive from Jesus. We are forgiven and restored by the blood he shed on the cross. And we are brought into a relationship with him. We are filled with the very life of God so that we can leave all of that behind and walk with a whole new identity, a whole new name in the righteousness of Christ. Three questions as we bring this in for a landing. Am I living in the darkness or the light? Do you know the light of the world? Do you feel like you are walking in the light that Jesus offers to every single one of us? Or does it feel like you're still stumbling along through the dark, kind of with your hands out, wondering what's next, feeling your way through this life? See, many people, I think, live in darkness because they don't feel like they have a choice. Like, this was the hand that you were dealt, you know, and it's just the way that things are. Or maybe you feel like you've made bad choices and now you're totally trapped in a situation. You're trapped in addiction. You're trapped in a toxic relationship. You're trapped in a dead-end job. You're trapped and you just can't get out and everything feels dark around you. Maybe you're stuck in depression and you just can't shake free. Maybe you just identify as a dark soul. The Bible is clear that there is no darkness that cannot be overcome by the light and life of God. In John 12, 46, we read, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Jesus 
calls us out of darkness and into what the Bible says is his marvelous, his wonderful light. And today, if you feel ready to leave all of that darkness behind, I have good news for you. Jesus invites you to come and step into the light of relationship with him, to leave that old way of being behind. You see, there is nothing that you have ever done that is beyond his love, beyond his ability to be able to heal, restore, and bring you into a new life with him. And when you look into his eyes, you will not find condemnation. You will not find shame. You will not see him wagging his finger at you for living in such darkness for so long. You will find compassion and an invitation to leave your life of sin behind and walk with him. Question two, what am I hiding in the shadows? Are there areas of your life that you feel like you've thrown into a closet locked the door, and thrown away the key. Areas that you're trying to hide from God and from other people. You see, you can try to lock the door. You can try to hide parts of yourself, but Jesus already sees what's back there. And so when we hide stuff in darkness, all we are doing is keeping ourselves from receiving the healing and the life that we experience when it's brought into the light. You see, the stuff that we are ashamed of, it doesn't go away just by hiding it in the dark. In fact, what we know to be true from our own personal experience is that it, it grows in the dark. The more things are thrown into the corner behind the door, when you open that door, you discover that thing got a lot bigger than we ever imagined it to be. And it gets beyond what we can manage. I mean, isn't this just true of our experience? Uh, like I mentioned uh, a week ago, I'm going super long. I'm so sorry, but let's just, let's just try. <laughs> let's, just, let's just talk about Jesus. Like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we, ha- we were rocked in the evangelical world by a scandal, a man who was a hero in the faith, an apologist, Ravi Zacharias. And over the last year, that all of this hidden stuff that was buried, that no one knew was, was back there, it starts to surface after he's been, di- he's been dead for a year. And we've been rocked and shaken by it. And as a leader, it causes me to ask this question, how do you get there? How did that happen? Because I can't imagine like, letting myself do that. And you know how it happens? One thought at a time. One unconfessed sin at a time. A little less accountability, a little less openness, a little more hiddenness, and it grows and it grows and it grows. And this leads us to living two lives where we're living publicly some life that we wish was true about us, all the while dragging behind the dark, uh, the dark, like heavy burden of our true selves. And let me tell you, friends, you were not created, you were not designed by God to live like that. You weren't meant to carry two lives, and it will exhaust you, it will crush you. In 1 John 1, we read, This is the message that we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, We're just deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us of all unrighteousness. Living in darkness and hiddenness is a life of deception. But all of us are invited to walk in light with Jesus and to have openness with each other. My friends, we need each other so that we can experience this life. You know, when you walk out of a dark room after you've been in, uh, when you've been in the dark for a while and you walk into the light of day, it hurts your eyes, doesn't it? Like, it takes you a minute to adjust. It kind of stings. And that is often true of exposing sin. That sin always wants to scurry back to the dark. It hurts being out in the light. The journey towards freedom begins with a painful confession. It's not easy. And if we're honest, confession can be really costly. That when you confess what's been growing in the dark, it may not be this total experience of freedom and everybody's just happy, clappy, and joyful. There's consequences to it, right? There's trust that's been broken. Your hidden sin will likely hurt you and others. But here's the truth. It's been hurting you and others the whole time. You cannot heal from that hurt until you bring it to the light. And once it's in the open, we are promised to receive grace upon grace and freedom. You see, God has a way of exposing what's hidden, but he invites us to do it ourselves and to meet him and to experience his grace. Third question as we close. Am I living as a light? Jesus said that not only would we walk in his light, but that his light would be within us and would radiate out for the world to see. You see, when the people of Israel were first called, when when Abraham was called by God, the promise was that that he was going to be a blessing for all the nations, that God was going to basically pour himself into the people of Israel so that Israel would show the rest of the world what God is like. That when Jesus dies and is resurrected and then ascends to the right hand of the Father, he tells the church, go and wait for me. I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit, and then you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to show everybody around you what I am like. Jesus says that the church was meant to be salt and light. We were supposed to be a city on the hill, testifying to the goodness, the glory of God. And let me tell you what the most powerful testimony is for the church. It is not to tell everybody that when I gave my life to Jesus, everything got really good and I prospered and my life is totally healthy and happy. The, the thing that, tell, that, that is the good news that we pronounce to the rest of the world is that I was broken, but now I'm forgiven. That I was dead, but now I am alive. That I was in sin and bondage, but now I am free and experience life with Jesus forever. We are the light of the world now too. So do you feel like you are shining as a light? Philippians says that in the midst of a wicked and depraved generation, the righteous will shine as stars. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 13, we see that we were once darkness, but now we have become light in the Lord. You are called to shine forth in your communities, not to hide in darkness. And you are meant to shine in such a way that we draw other people into the light of God to experience the same freedom we have been given. So who is Jesus calling you to share this good news with? To walk alongside on their journey out of darkness and into light. Every single one of us has been called to share this good news because we have been given this good news. So who has God placed in your life so that the light that's within you would touch them? Hold out your light to others, praying for them, sharing with them, inviting them to experience what you have received.
Amen? Let's stand. So now we're just going to take a few minutes and we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to lead us in a time of responding. Let me pray for us and then I'm going to hand it over to Jace. We thank you for the gospel, Lord. The truest thing about us that the day that we responded to you, we received forgiveness wholeness, true, abundant life so that we can leave everything behind. And God, I just pray for my friends. I pray for myself, for my own heart. Lord, we ask that even in this moment, you would, in your grace and in your kindness, you would shine a light, a spotlight on those areas where we feel like we are hiding because we want to walk in total freedom. Lead us, Lord. Lead us, Lord. Hey, everyone. If you're new here, this is the time we take to be quiet before God um, and to respond to His Spirit's movement. Um, So uh, what I want to share and then... Um, open up with is just what we've been sensing in our prayer meetings, um, what God is um, sort of trying to teach us and tell us. And if this um, applies to you, please, please come on up. In fact, the if the prayer team would come up right now, um, these people are available to pray with you up here. If you're willing to come forward, um, if you can't, if you cannot bear that, <laughs> please raise your hand, and some eager person out there will find you. I promise. Um, the first thing, um, in direct response to Marshall's sermon, um, I just wanted to share this verse that was highlighted in John chapter 3. Um, Jesus says, right after the most famous 316 passage, he says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Um, exposure is what evil hates. The next verse, though, is, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen and that his works can be carried out in God, which means um, exposure is not a bad thing. God actually, it's like putting baby poop on a onesie in the sun. It gets hit with light and cleans it up. It's a parental analogy for you right there. Um, but it's, your, it's our sin. It's baby poop. So bring it forward and don't be afraid of exposure. It's a, healings in store. So um, confession is uh, invited today. Another thing is, is I saw a picture of a um, tra- uh, trapeze artists, and one person was um, c- coming at the end of their sort of arc on their little swing, um, and they let go <laughs> to grab onto that other person. That's that happens in real life. Trapeze artists are they are real, um, which means that it's possible for the human soul to experience a radical amount of trust in another human. And um, I got the picture that that is that prayers for. I think it's for a um, a female, middle aged female today. Maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. But this is like a pivotal moment in your life, and God's calling you to trust like you're letting go of a 
trapeze swing and grab onto him. That's for you. Please come forward. Um, if you're not a middle-aged female and that just feels like you, please <laughs> come forward. And we could all use a little bit more trust. <laughs> but there you go. Uh, one more thing. Um, there is an awkwardness before God for a lot of you. In the same way that quarantine and masks have made us feel socially awkward. You know how you like don't know how to have a conversation anymore? Um, a lot of you feel this way in your prayer life. And, and God just wants to, enough's enough. You do not need to feel awkward before him. Um, and if you just need help in praying with someone to remind you that prayer is what you've been made to pray and to be with God, um, please don't waste any more time. <laughs> Become comfortable in his presence again because he wants to start to talk to you. Um, so here we go. This is the part where we think it's awkward, but it's not. We just invite God, and then we're patient, and we wait. So come, Holy Spirit. I just invite you to move in the room. God, I pray that you'd open our eyes to things that are going on in ourselves and with our neighbors.